This podcast represents my opinions and the opinions of my guests. This is not medical advice, and I'm not establishing a physician-patient relationship with any listener. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each person is so unique, please consult with your healthcare professional for any medical questions that you may have. Welcome, welcome, everyone. You're listening to the second episode of the Not Your Doc podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Diedrichsen, and we're joined again by Mr. Not Your Doc himself, Dr. Charles Tadros. How you doing? Hey, hi, Vanessa. <laughs> how's, your, how's your week? It's been pretty good. Lots going on. I'm happy about the fall weather, obviously. Yes, beautiful days. I am. So... You know, we kind of uh, did a little bit of an overview last time, and I guess we're going to start digging into some of the good stuff today. Yes. Um, We had a lot of discussion about where we should really start with this, and I think that we could, you know, a good place to settle is is the main condition that we treat um, here at Midwest Institute for Hearts and Minds, which is depression. So we obviously we use ketamine here to help people have tried and failed many other treatments for their depression. Um, Of course, we'll get to ketamine specifically a little bit later. But uh, as we alluded to in the previous episode, like you were explaining, a lot of issues with patients understanding their diagnosis and treatments is that things just aren't explained very well. Mm -hmm. That's right. So I think the goal of today is just to kind of zoom the lens out and start with the basics about depression. Yeah, sure. So Dr. Tadros, what is depression? Well, people use the word depression to mean a bunch of different things. And, and, and a lot of people say that they had a bad day and they were depressed. And that's not mm. technically, that's not the medical term. Uh, that's not how the medical term is used. Uh, so the, 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 the word sadness or grief or loneliness or other things that are kind of negative connotations, uh, negative feelings uh, for, for mood, uh, don't necessarily mean clinical depression or, or what we call major depression. Uh, for major depression, it's something that at least at lasts two weeks for, uh, at least and then at, at least has uh, several features and typically uh, low mood. Um, and uh, and loss of pleasure are some of the big components of, of it. Um, there's a bunch of other things. Altered sleep, uh, increased sleep or decreased sleep, altered appetite, increased appetite or decreased appetite. Um, uh, like I said, altered energy, mm-hmm. uh, usually de- uh, not increased but decreased energy, <clears throat> a lack of motivation uh, for stuff, even for fun things like uh, playing with your kids or playing with your grandkids, yeah. uh, going out for a fun time. Um, and some, and certainly, uh, uh, that's some of the basic stuff that we see over and over again. Um, um, so, but people typically will talk about depression as, in a variety of ways. But, but whenever it comes to treatment-resistant depression, it's clinical depression that has um, that has failed treatment. And treatment, in this case, is is not that high of a hurdle to achieve. It's at least um, two different drugs um, that are come to full dose because sometimes you have to start them at low dose and ramp them up over several weeks to mm-hmm. months, um, and giving it a, a, a enough several weeks to months for them to work. And if the two, if a person has failed two different drugs, um, um, or sometimes we can consider if the two drugs have stopped working, even if you increase the doses to appropriate FDA-approved levels um, or manufacturer-approved uh, dosings, then we, get, well, then we can potentially call these people treatment-resistant. And okay. Typically, it's about mm, about probably ten to thirty percent of people who try antidepressants, oral antidepressants, that don't respond well enough, and we can call those treatment resistant. Okay, all right. So let me back you up a little bit then. So it and you kind of alluded to this at the beginning. It is depression a, a clinical diagnosis or is it an emotion? Is it a feeling I have? So yeah, unlike unlike blood pressure and cholesterol, where we can get something objective, we could put a blood pressure cuff on you and get some numbers. We don't have to ask you what your blood pressure is or your cholesterol numbers. We can get from a blood test. We don't have to ask you about your cholesterol, how you feel about your cholesterol. In a lot of mental health and psychiatry, not everything, but a lot of it is what the person looks like and behaves like and and also says. So a lot of it's observational. So a lot of it is uh, what we'll call um, what a lot of us will call mood or, or, or mood or emotions. So it's mm. it's. It's a it's a low mood, uh, persistently low mood, um, and um, and that's kind of where it starts. 
Um, but it's yeah, it's different than a lot of other medical conditions that that we chronic conditions that we treat. Yeah. So I wouldn't say that I have clinical depression unless I've been diagnosed by a medical professional, and it's it's something more than just feeling sad from time to time, right? Yeah. It's the normal ups and downs of our days of our lives are interacting with other people that's uh, that's not unusual uh, if your kids are having troubles with school uh, uh, the, or if your your mom is sick or or, you, or you're about to lose your job a lot of that stuff is stress and sadness but not necessarily depression it can turn into depression and depression can coexist with uh, sadness appropriate sadness mm-hmm. and appropriate grief and that's where it's hard because sometimes people say I'm depressed and I've been on medicine I've been doing fine but now I feel worse because you know the pandemic hit. And so is it because, you know, are you appropriately sad or is it because your depression has gotten worse? And sometimes that's very hard to differentiate. So you mentioned a lot of different situations there in which people would kind of experience, be expected to experience low mood or grief or sadness or whatever, but who, who gets depressed? Mm -hmm. Who's susceptible to depression? It's everybody. Uh, Women on average, for adults, uh, women on average are more than men, but uh, that are diagnosed uh, with major depression, Mm -hmm. but anybody can be. And in in the old, old days, uh, we didn't think kids could become depressed, but we now know that kids can't have depression. Um, And depression doesn't always mean suicidality. People think that mm. depression has to be severe enough to call suicide uh, or su- severe enough to not get out of bed. And that's not true. Those are certainly extreme cases of depression that are very easy to pick up, uh, but much milder depression that can uh, rob you of your energy and your life and your uh, and your relationships um, is kind of what we tend to see on average whenever we're first diagnosing depression oftentimes. Oh, so old people, young people, children, mm-hmm. can, can animals get depression? Have we yeah. seen that in animal models? Sure, yes, animals can get depressed. Uh, some of our, uh, I don't know about amphibians and uh, and, and reptiles, but uh, certainly uh, mammals. Mm. Uh, so uh, chimpanzees and, and our pets, our dogs, for instance, uh, they can have uh, depression. Um, uh, so yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, like without getting too wonky and into medical textbook, you know, explanations of this, can you give us just a general idea of what's happening in a depressed brain? Yeah. So in the old days, you know, different different theories have happened uh, over decades, and uh, just now we've left uh, the brain being deficient in serotonin hmm. uh, philosophy that we've had for probably forty years. So that's on its way out. It's on its way out. Yeah. Um, uh, so now it's uh, it's uh, overactive and underactive uh, uh, centers of the brains or pathways mm. uh, between centers of the brains. Uh, uh, so that's that's the that's the philosophy now is that underactive and overactive pathways. So it sounds like you're saying we don't have as exact of an explanation of how it works as we do with like coronary artery disease or something like that. That's right. We have better brain imaging, uh, unlike unlike uh, uh, heart disease, where we can ultrasound your heart and do a, a, um, um, we can do dye studies of your heart. We're just now in the few, last few decades in, in, in research settings only, really, looking at brains, uh, functional MRI. We're looking at uh, SPECT scans, single photon, uh, single photon energy CT scans. Uh, so we're able to look at, uh, at, at directly at the brain or surrogate markers like blood flow to the brain uh, centers that are under active or overactive. Mm. But this is really experimental. I know some people are out there using it um, 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 uh, to help diagnose and treat patients, uh, uh, just the commercial public uh, uh, setting. But that's not, ex- that's not, that's not accepted as uh, good science uh, right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how uh, we've established, you know, depression's more than just an emotion. It's, you know, it's more than just feeling sad occasionally. When, how can people tell if it's time for them to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist because of their depression symptoms? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the problem is that with a lot of mental health issues that the patient themselves are, uh, are suffering, but it's others that notice it before, probably before the patient does. Others notice a personality or behavioral change, sleep mm-hmm. disturbance, uh, irritability, uh, et cetera. Um, so sometimes it's somebody else coming to your mom, your your, your husband, your spouse, your uh, or your adult kids saying, "Hey, there's something going on here." Um, so that's part of the problem is that that uh, that uh, people sometimes put up a wall whenever somebody's telling them that there's something wrong and yeah. there's, it, it's affecting them. Um, certainly, if you 
you, uh, if you're finding that you're not, if you, it's not just not functioning, but it's taking a lot of energy to function. Hmm. So certainly the obvious thing is if you're not able to make it to work, not to be able to make it work on time or school or school on time, those are kind of big markers. There are certainly other things can happen. You can certainly have anxiety and you can have addictions, other things that can uh, make you not function in, in your day-to-day uh, needs and your responsibilities. But if you're having a hard time, that's one of the first things that we have to ask about. Are you depressed? Um, so th- th- that's, uh, that's very important to start there. And then the other piece that I found with my practice over time is that people can make it to work. People can, but yeah. they're exhausted. They, they barely can make out of bed. They drag themselves uh, to get ready in the morning. They have to use a lot of caffeine and other things to get them going in the morning. Yeah. And they're just exhausted. They can do their work, but sometimes they you know, have to push themselves and they can't really do a lot of other things in their life that they want to do or have to do because their main responsibility, their kids or their job or school just exhausts them. Yeah. Are there, are there physical indicators too, as well as like mental, emotional functionality issues? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, probably depression, and anxiety are probably one of the big issues that we run into that cause a lot of our, uh, contribute to a lot of our chronic physical issues like pain, for instance, and mm-hmm. headaches. Uh, but certainly, uh, people who are losing weight or gaining weight abnormally, uh, abnormal to compared to what they're used what they're used to, we have to consider depression among a bunch of other metabolic and other clinical issues. Mm-hmm. So once again, it's very important for people who may be depressed to have somebody look for physical causes for depression or mm-hmm. what we call medical causes for depression. Uh, so people that are low on B12, people that are low on uh, low, low on thyroid hormone or hypothyroid uh, are, are classic textbooks. Uh, uh, reasons for become depressed. We just don't want to put those people antidepressants. We want to treat their B12 or their, uh, their folic acid deficiency or their thyroid issues. Sure. So that wouldn't be a psychiatrist then. They would, you know, it's an that's internist. Right. Or that's a good point. Uh, the vast majority of people are, don't access a psychiatrist or a psychologist right away. The vast majority of people who are depressed or feel like they may be depressed have uh, end up seeing their primary care physician or their GYN, mm. uh, uh, who's oftentimes considered a primary care uh, physician. Um, and so it starts typically starts starts there, um, which includes sometimes a physical exam, uh, palpation or feeling of, for, for the thyroid gland, make sure it's not enlarged and checking thyroid studies and uh, 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 CBC, complete blood count, which includes white cells and red cells and red platelets, um, comprehensive metabolic panel, complete metabolic panel, which includes sodium and potassium and kidney and liver function tests. So that's pretty basic stuff. So thyroid studies, B12, folic acid or folate mm-hmm. um, and uh, CBC. <clears throat> Uh, the, those, and those are to kind of rule out a, a right. medical cause that's of correct. depression. That's correct. And that's extremely important. It's very, it's not very common, uh, uh, but those are fairly correctable. There are causes, for instance, uh, rare, very rare causes. I don't want people to panic, but for instance, uh, cancer, so, uh, cancer of the head of the pancreas, uh, this is even before mm. people have abdominal pain, uh, can, can cause, uh, can cause uh, uh, depression. <clears throat> so, uh, and, and drinkers and non-drinkers. Uh, so it's important to recognize um, um, that we do need a physical exam and blood work at least once along the early uh, part of, of diagnosing and, and treating depression. Mm-hmm. So once we've had kind of that, you know, ruled out some of those things with that consultation with our primary care doc or internist or whatever, yes. um, what, what happens next with a psychiatrist? Like what is the psychiatrist looking for and mm-hmm. what are they going to offer me to help with my depression? Well, it's a good point that you jump to the psychiatrist because the vast majority of people are treated by their primary care physician initially. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. A vast majority of family, family practice uh, physicians and, and primary care physicians such as internists and pediatricians and GYNs, gynecologists, OBGYNs, are typically trained to, to, to initiate the safest drug and the most commonly used class of drugs, SSRIs, elective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. That's the Prozacs uh, that the Prozac came out in 87 in the United States. Prozacs and the Zolofs and the Paxils and the Selexas mm. and the Lexapros. Uh, those those are the ones that uh, uh, those are the ones that typically are started initial, uh, initially. There are reasons to start other products uh, first, but it's not unusual to have a primary care physician do one or two or three different uh, dose increases or different mm. cha- changing products yeah. uh, uh, before they say maybe it's time to see a psychiatrist. So okay, yeah. So they try a couple of things first. Then okay. So once we're you know, escalated to a point that, you know, we definitely need to get the psychiatrist involved. What is, what, what more in-depth 
um, searching and discovering is the psychiatrist going to want to do with me as a mm-hmm. patient, and mm-hmm. then what are going to be their their goals in my treatment? Yeah, that's a good portion a point about the goals. And this, by the way, this is goals for as a general internist. Uh, goals. This is goals for any chronic disease. Uh, uh, you, you some diseases we can cure. A lot of them we can't. We 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 what we tend to mitigate the the, the negative effects. We try to get people to be more functional, uh, even if we can't cure you. Cure for me is where you can stop the medicine, stop the treatment, and not have to see a physician or primary care or doctor or psychiatrist anymore, and you're, you're fine. That's considered for me a cure. Uh, but the vast majority of people that get to depression, the general principle is first episode of depression, if you treat somebody for nine months with an oral antidepressant, uh, 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 90% chance that they're, uh, I'm sorry, a uh, 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 50% chance, excuse me. So first episode of depression, treatment, oral treatment with the antidepressant for at least nine months, 50% chance after you to stop the medicine that they're going to relapse. Fifty percent will do fine. Yeah. Not had relapse. If you have two episodes of depression, seventy percent chance of relapse if you stop the medicine. Mm. And if you have three episodes of depression, ninety percent chance of relapse. So the more more rounds of uh, of depression, and uh, a lot of people have been through multiple rounds before they even see the first first practitioner to yeah. take care of them. First uh, health health care practitioner. So is it pretty typical for depression to be a chronic condition that people you know mm-hmm. have to manage? their whole lives basically that's correct and that's the frustrating part obviously yeah. is people don't want to have to pay for the money don't want to have the side effects sometimes erectile dysfunction or uh, decreased libido or uh, weight gain uh, that can happen with some if not many of these antidepressants um, so it's very hard to continue taking something especially if you finally feel good or feel good enough right um, and some people want to stop it within a few weeks um, but certainly the minimum is uh, for, for is nine months of therapy if we initiate and antidepressant for right correct diagnosis of depression the minimum treatment should be nine months okay so what i mean you you mentioned ssris are there can you give us a, an overview of what treatments are available to us through a psychiatrist and mm-hmm. what things they might try first mm-hmm. before we hit that treatment resistant point yeah we want to differentiate the typical depression does not need to come see people like us for ketamine that's extremely important to differentiate so the typical depressed person uh so ssris uh then sometimes the SNRI, selective uh, norepinephrine reuptake, reuptake inhibitors, Effexor and Cymbalta, I'm using trade names, mm-hmm. uh, are uh, oftentimes used uh, sometimes as first line first ti- uh, or sometimes as second line after you, the, the, uh, the SSRIs don't work. Um, and then uh, products such as Wellbutrin, which tends to work a little more on norepinephrine and some dopamine, can be added to, not just instead of, but can be added to one of the first two products. Um, and, then, uh, and then we... Uh, from there, there are several other classes, but then we start getting into um, non-traditional antidepressants, but atypical antipsychotics, yeah. the Abilifies and the um, uh, um, and the Seroquels mm-hmm. um, that. Traditionally, we would have reserved in the old days the the, the 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 first generation of these we would have reserved for for bipolar patients and for schizophrenic patients. But the second generation, uh, or the atypical antipsychotics, we now use as uh, add-on therapy to antidepressants to help people who have depression that's not responding very well to one of the first lines of uh, uh, antidepressants. I, I forgot to mention. Before we had SSRIs, before the Prozac in 87, we used to have MAO inhibitors, uh, monoamine oxidase uh, uh, inhibitors, and uh, we also had tricyclic antidepressants. So these are old-fashioned drugs that did do quite well, but they came with quite a bit side of, quite a few side effects, dry mouth, blurred vision, urinary retention, constipation. Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah. But So that's why Prozac, when it came out, was was a fantastic drug. Minimal side, effect compared to, side effects compared to the old drugs mm-hmm. uh, and worked uh, oftentimes just as well, not necessarily superior, and that's important to differentiate. It's not superior to the old drugs, but just had fewer side effects. The, the old drugs, if you overdosed on them, uh, there was severe, uh, severe consequences. Prozac, uh, very safe at uh, high doses, and even if people accidentally overdose. Uh, so yeah, big difference. So I guess before we get into, you know, some of the treatments out there for treatment resistant depression, we should put a plug in here about uh, about therapy. You know, what's the kind of what's the medical consensus about the role of therapy in treating depression? You know, uh, it's interesting. I, I'm I'm a, f- a humongous fan of therapy, and I I think you are, too. Yeah, uh, I am. <laughs> we, we've, you know, in our clinic, um, 
and our ketamine clinic that we've been running now for six years, a large chunk of my, my intake, whenever I sit down for about an hour and a half with a patient and their loved one, uh, before we ever talk about, uh, give them considered ketamine, we sit and talk for an hour and a half to understand history. Mm-hmm. What I recognize, and after many years of as a primary care doctor, prescribing oral antidepressants and antipsychotics, and then now with, with another tool of ketamine, um, I find that a lot of people have not done enough or, or the right type of, uh, of talk therapy. And talk therapy, there's a whole range of talk therapies. Um, uh, um, but uh, psychotherapy is a more technical term. But there's a whole uh, range of them. And some of them are very, very specific. For instance, um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for, for, for um, OCD and anxiety is exceptionally good and also for depression. And a version of uh, cognitive behavioral, dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, mm-hmm. uh, which is now being expanded to cover a lot of uh, uh, diagnoses, uh, but also for, for personality disorders, borderline patients, that's been shown. Um, so, um, um, so also exposure therapy, exposure and response therapy for people with... Um, uh, with uh, with phobias um, um, uh, and OCD, um, so there's there's a lot of there's uh, so they're very specific therapies that have g- good scientific evidence that we should either try first or try in conjunction with any of the medicines, including the orals and and the ketamine. Yeah. So what just generally like what are what would be the goals of, of therapy? Like what are some general skills or self reflections that Mm -hmm. are important to helping people be, you know, successful during their treatment for depression? You know, and and I'm glad you keep bringing me back to goals because sometimes I find that the patients, maybe the, the, the therapist understands the goals because the therapist is sending treatment plans to the insurance companies with mm. short-term and long-term goals. But oftentimes the patient doesn't understand or see that or read or read read that. Um, so uh, certainly the first goal, uh, one of the goals is always about safety. Make sure the patient's not suicidal. Right. And that's, that's that's very important. And if you and believe it or not, if you ask the vast majority of patients, they will tell you if they are currently suicidal or have been suicidal or attempted. Right. So I think there's a, lot, a big fear of asking people uh, to fear that they may sh- may traumatize or shock the patient, yeah. um, and uh, it's really imperative that that we, in the appropriate setting, the appropriate people, mm-hmm. uh, to be able to ask a. a, a a patient or potential patient. So that's the first thing. Uh, it's never been shown that, that asking a patient gives them the idea to try to commit the, uh, suicide. So that's, uh, we should do a whole, a whole um, section on, on just suicide. Uh, we should do another podcast about that. That's extremely oh, yeah. important. Absolutely. Especially now that there's a national number, which is 988. 988. Yes, yes. please. 988 is a national number anywhere in the United States. You call 988. I assume it's landlines and cell phones. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, you will, and uh, that'll hook you into a hotline for suicidality. Yep. Uh, so, um, um, so the so therapy first thing is about safety. Next thing is uh, it delves oftentimes in, a little bit into your past. It depends on what types of therapy uh, about your childhood, etc. But a lot of therapies focused on currently how you're functioning yeah. and how and the the physical signs and symptoms, the mental uh, uh, signs and symptoms, and and, and kind of coalescing these to help you understand how to get through your day. Sure. Your coping skills, what That's you right. rely on. That's right. To get through it. And uh, and it's imperative. I think uh, why we see people desperately uh, for treatment-resistant depression, oftentimes things have come to a head. Yeah. So there's kind of a semi-emergency, if not a true emergency. Uh, they're certainly sad and frustrated because a lot of things have stopped working or never worked. But um, but but it's, but there's a lot of functional stuff. They want to get out. They want to take care of their household. They want to take care of their kids. They want to take care of their job. They want to go to work. They want to enjoy uh, retirement. Uh, so there's kind of this urgency. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that crisis point definitely drives plenty of people. Yes. So... What what kinds of uh, what kinds of research really goes goes into deciding like which which of these treatments for depression are like are to be tried first mm-hmm. and then which ones are being pushed to a more treatment resistant level and mm-hmm. like why how do, how does that decision making process go? Well, that's part of the that's a part of the frustra- part of the frustration for for uh, sometimes payers and for other people is that they if they see three different psychiatrists uh, let's pretend it's all the way to level psychiatrists they will be treated start on three different drugs. Some people claim it's whatever drug they happen to have in their closet as a sample. Mm. 
mm. from the from the pharmaceutical company. A lot of times, of course, it's not because uh, because insurance won't pay some, oftentimes for the newest and fanciest drug. Yeah. Um, and the and there's a lot of and people need to understand the vast majority of there. there it's not true for every uh, case, but the vast majority of, of of drugs in psychiatry don't have superiority to other drugs that were that were uh, previous generations. Interesting. So uh, it's not that it's superior. Otherwise, you'd say, why use the old drug? Let's yeah. start with a more superior, newer drug. Uh, but there, there are some superiority uh, uh, the claims that are FDA approved uh, um, for select drugs, and I can't remember all of them right now. But, but the vast majority are not superior, uh, uh, but just uh, sometimes have better side effect, better okay. side effect protocol yeah. mm-hmm. once a day as opposed to twice or three times sure. a day. So it's easier to or remember to le- take. Less weight gain, associated right. with less weight gain as yeah. opposed to more weight right. gain, right. those kinds of things. So, yeah. um, right. so I, I should jump back. Talk, the talk therapists also tend to be the ones that establish the best best relationship the 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 the, the, the treatment uh, patient relationship or the used to be called physician uh, uh, patient relationship as a therapeutic alliance therapeutic but, alliance, it, but it's yeah. it's oftentimes a lot of the therapists are uh, uh, a variety of d- degrees or certifications after their name so mm-hmm. licensed professional counselor licensed uh, clinical social worker msw which is master of social work phd in psychology psych d so there's a bunch of different uh, people with different educational backgrounds that do talk therapy, do uh, do it well. And there's certainly some amount of education that those therapists have to go through to understand some of these neurological bases and how yes. and you know medications that are available for treatment, that kind of thing. Not that they yeah. can prescribe necessarily, but mm-hmm. they they're a good resource for patients to advocate for themselves with their psychiatrists or doctors as well. Yeah, the the, the biopsychosocial model, it's a bi- biological, psychological, and social model, is is kind of is kind of the preeminent way of thinking about mental health in the United States, probably in Western Western culture. Uh, so it's a biological, this is the brain circuits and, and, and neurotransmitters, and, uh, and uh, psychological, this is the emotions and memories and feelings and thoughts, and social interactions with family and, uh, and, outside, and outside society. So we, uh, in some ways, people say, see, you know, the old, old days, you know, ancient times, people didn't necessarily think about the biological, but they thought about the psychosocial piece. The, sure. And that was... So we're, we're returning to some, some of those old, old ways. Interesting. All right. So now we're going to, I, I want to talk about, so we, you know, we've, we've seen our internist, we've ruled out some possible medical causes for our depression. We've seen our psychiatrist who's put us through, you know, a few rounds of different drugs, you know, dosing correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk to us specifically now about the definition of treatment resistant depression? What, what qualifies as treatment resistant depression? And mm-hmm. then where we can talk more about treatments that are available for that. I, you know, I, whenever I start looking eight years ago, whenever we start thinking about ketamine, um, I, the easiest one is, as I mentioned before, uh, for let's pretend this is for an adult depressed patient who's correctly diagnosed for treatment resist uh, or is being de- depressed but difficult to treat is they're not being as functional on medicine or the medicines are not happening uh, helping at all yeah. um, so at least two different drugs sometimes in the same class sometimes in different classes of drugs for full doses full adult doses for probably several months to make sure that they've re- reached blood levels and they've uh, they, to see if it can correct the the, the depressive behaviors mm. um, the, depressive thoughts and feelings and behaviors. So we should say something there about the importance of ta- if you're prescribed an antidepressant, you got to mm-hmm. give it you got to give it the good the old college try by yeah. taking it as prescribed for a specific you know, sure. a significant period of time to see if it's yeah. going to alleviate those symptoms, right? You can't so, just yeah. It's, it's sometimes it tricks you. Sometimes you'll feel better for 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 uh, within a couple of doses mm. uh, of, of starting a new drug. You'll feel better within like a day or two, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. But then it goes away, and so we're not sure why there's initial bursts. There's some theories about that, but then it goes away, and then you have to wait anywhere from three to six weeks to see the the benefit of that dose. Yeah. Um, and so it's not unusual for a physician or psychiatrist to say, please call me in a couple of weeks. Uh, but I'll see you back in six weeks. Um, you know, we want to make sure that you don't have adverse side effects because, side, as we use, as we say, side effects come before benefits. So right. if you're going to get dry mouth or inside or, or be too sleepy or etc., it tends to come very quickly. It doesn't have to build up. Whereas the benefit tends to have to be uh, has build up over time. That's good to know to manage those expectations, yes, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people are on the phone. They hate it from the day. You know, they've they barely have taken the first pill and they're already on the phone complaining that they can't. Take 
take this pill. Uh, the f- people have to listen. Uh, you know, the medical professionals have to listen. But if you warn people, uh, they tend to they tend to be understanding. And sure. oftentimes you have to have uh, have to have people hand hand out information. I just tell them verbally hand out information because people sometimes can't hear everything whenever they're super depressed. Yeah, I mean, just like anecdotally and personally here for a second, that was like mm-hmm. a you know that was a big turning point in my personal treatment process was making the conscious decision like, okay, it's it's frustrating to have to try lots of different meds, but I'm going to take my medication every day exactly mm-hmm. as it is prescribed because it rules out a variable, right? Mm-hmm, that's right? Like if I know that I'm taking it every day exactly as it's prescribed with the right dose, then I can tell my psychiatrist, they'll, they'll know, is it helping me? Is it not helping me? We don't have to worry about there's right. an unknown variable of usage, right? That's correct. Yeah, that's one of the frustrations is that on average, this is medical practitioners and nurse practitioners, uh, 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 psychiatric nurses, uh, physicians uh, um, want to please the patient. They want to help the patient. Sure. If the patient calls and every time they call, the, the, the physician, nurse practitioner, or PA uh, uh, keeps changing the dose or keeps changing the medicines. We really never know what really would have worked right. um, as, as opposed to spending more time to sit and uh, to figure out what the patient, what the patients worried about or what they're afraid that's not going to happen or is happening. Um, And and likewise, if the patient isn't taking it as prescribed, they're not going to, That's right. you know, they're going to be making those changes, uh, you know, with, with really no end in sight. Yeah, absolutely. And and it racks up a big bill. I mean, Mm. it's better to sit down and talk than to keep changing medications uh, because every time you get a new medicine, you have a new copay um, and it sets you back a little bit of time, et cetera, because you have to start all over again. um, And and, uh, and then, of course, uh, the, 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 as you on average, you tend to start with less expensive medicines that work. Yeah, uh, they've been around since the eight, eight, you know eight late eighties, sometimes earlier. Um, and then if and if you if you go through one or two classes uh, pretty quickly, then you tend to get the more expensive classes of drugs that your insurance has a, doesn't want to cover or has a higher copay. Yeah. Okay, so we we said two two drugs then, right? Trying at to least, talk about treatment. Least, yes, at least, and the vast vast majority of the patients that come see us, of course, not have tried you know many drugs. I won't say dozens, many many dozens yeah. of doses and combinations. People Absolutely. forget yeah. that it's not unusual to be on two or three different antidepressants. Uh, not usually three, but two antidepressants plus an atypical antipsychotic or sleep medicine or anti anxiety medicine. So it's not unusual to be on uh, you know three and four. For uh, just uh, this is even uh, for depression, anxiety, or insomnia and depression, it's not unusual to be on three and four drugs yeah. pretty easily. Um, and and this is people say, oh my gosh, this is too many drugs. But whenever you look at, at, at how it, we got there, there's a there there is a logic behind it. Sure, <clears throat> absolutely. Okay, so then once we're you know once we're firmly in this you know category of treatment resistant depression, what are the available treatments out there for that? Yeah, in the United States, the four FDA approved treatments, the Food and Drug Administration has FDA approved treatments for for uh, four different ways of t- treating treatment resistant depression. Uh, the tried and true old fashioned one is ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. Unfortunately, it's gotten a bad rap from movies, etc. Mm, but yeah. that that is the stuff that saves lives. Whenever uh, when uh, this is uh, when nothing else will work. Yeah. Um, this is the stuff that will give for severe postpartum depression or people who've had a heart attack and are severely depressed. Uh, ECT is safe in these uh, situations. Why, why is it safe in those situations? Yeah, people think that electricity passed through your brain is harmful, to, to but it turns out that we've had decades and decades of experience and research uh, to show that this uh, this is uh, safe. We're not sure exactly how it works. It seems yeah. to reset the brain. Sometimes the pills that didn't w- stop working for depression after ECT seem to work again. We're not fully, we don't fully understand why, but uh, certainly that's still the gold standard. It's only because it's a gold standard because it's been around for decades. Yeah. Uh, but like it's I said, it's a non-chemical treatment, right? That's correct. Okay. It's non-chemical. That's right. Uh, they, you have light sedation and you either one side of the head or both sides. So, uh, 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 temporal unilateral bitemporal, uh, t- uh, uh, ECT, uh, bilateral typically for more severe cases. Uh, the biggest side effect typically is memory issues, which is a significant issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so usually unilateral is less memory issues. Bilateral tends to have more memory issues. And, um, and the memory issues tend to improve after you stop ECT. But so there's oftentimes a small gap still that people have uh, in terms of their memory. Okay. 
All right, ECT. So the next one is yeah, TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. All right. And that's a magnetic therapy. Uh, unlike ECT, where you're sedated and you have to have a driver, TMS is usually five days a week uh, for about 30 sessions. Uh, so, um, and that's, uh, you can drive yourself and drive yourself to and from, uh, no medications. And this is uh, using uh, pulse magnetic therapy, uh, also pointed at different sec- uh, parts of your brain. Uh, sometimes it's repetitive. Uh, sometimes it's deep, uh, but anyway, it's uh, we're not exactly sure how that works. Also, but it also seems to do kind of a hard boot or hard reset, mm-hmm. um, and that can be used with all these can be used with medications. Oftentimes they are used with medications and stuff like that. So is T- TMS is kind of informed by that new school of thought, right? About depression, about what causes depression. Mm-hmm. You know, the right. different pathways. levels of activity in the pathways. That's of the right. Brain, yeah, that's correct. The certain sections of the brain. So ECT TMS are FDA approved, and then Spravato came out about four. Years ago, it became available. That's a it's the mother compound of uh, or it's a daughter compound of ketamine. It's called S ketamine, E S ketamine, uh, and so it's called Spravato. What's a daughter compound? I need I, a definition. I, it's on my that. it's my it's it's made from the mother compound. So they take so there's a right and left side to the uh, ketamine molecule. Okay. They they t- they decide that the right side uh, gives you side effects to too much dissociation okay. and stuff like that. So they, they do the S the S or sinister in Latin is sinister's left side. Okay. So they they kind of make it called E. Yes, ketamine. Got it. So it's the left side. So okay. I, that's why that I call sense. it a yeah. compound. Okay. Anyway, so it's supposed to be a cleaner drug. It's a nasal spray, um, and it's done in the doctor's office. I think it's a two-hour sit uh, in the doctor's office. Um, um, insurance is starting to cover it, uh, et cetera, and that's also FDA approved. Mm-hmm. And the final thing that, I, if I remember correctly, is vagus nerve stimulator. This is something very specific, special. I've not seen it in our patients, but it's they you, they actually put a... Uh, <clears throat> A lead or a wire around your vagus nerve. That's a vagus nerve runs from the base of your brain down all the way down through your neck into your chest into your pelvis. But the vagus nerve, if you stim, if you run electricity through it through a pacemaker essentially, so they implant this as a surgical procedure. Uh, they can if you stimulate it, the vagus nerve it can potentially help severely depressed people also. Wow, that's there's some other non FDA approved things, uh, deep brain stimulation, some other things, but these are the fi- these are the four FDA approved things: uh, ECT, TMS. Spravato and uh, VNS or vagus nerve stimulator. Okay, so now that we've covered those, it's pre- it's pretty much time to get to ketamine infusion. Sure, yeah. Let's I'll, talk about it. Yeah, I always start out talking with my patients. I say uh, ketamine's been in the States, uh, United States. It was developed in Europe. It's been in the United States since uh, about the 60s. Um, and um, it's uh, actually FDA approved uh, only for one thing is for anesthesia, and that's not how we use it in our uh, clinic. Mm-hmm. We use it at sub anesthetic doses. Uh, so it turns out that years ago, people accidentally found out if you if you sedated people, the, the use of the FDA approved use uh, for it, and they woke up uh, after their surgery for their gallbladder or whatever, they would be less depressed if they had depression before, or less uh, anxious, or less neuropathy. This is another thing we use it for is for chronic pain. Uh, so it wouldn't last very long sometimes days to weeks, but these people would feel better uh, for other conditions. Mm-hmm. And as people started, started saying, do we have to sedate somebody and put them on a, on, on a ventilator while, you know, to, in order to get them less depressed? And the answer is no. You can do uh, small amounts repeatedly in the office setting, uh, either IM, intramuscular, or IV. Um, uh, you could do small amounts for a certain amount of frequency, and you can get a benefit for treatment re- to, to, for treatment-resistant depression. It's not a cure. It's not FDA-approved. Mm-hmm. We can use it off-label. It's very common, very legal in the United States to use something, not, uh, the drug that's not FDA-approved for condition uh, that the physician deems necessary. Um, and uh, and uh, but but we can dig people out. What I call dig people out of their darkest holes. That nothing else seems to work for. And some of our patients see us before they see, get ECT. Some of them see us after they had ECT or TMS. Yeah. So is just a backup. Ketamine has been used in humans for mm-hmm. quite a long time. I think a lot of people are probably familiar with ketamine as a, a horse tranquilizer, right. something yeah. you might find in your veterinary office, That's and right. then also that you know cl- would be a club drug. That's right. You know, in the '90s or so. Yeah, it's uh, you know, unfortunately, everything makes it out on the street eventually. Uh, but uh, so ketamine is a Schedule Three drug. The Drug Enforcement Agency put out a schedule uh, back, starting back in the '70s. They scheduled it as uh, they schedule one through five. 
five, I believe. And one schedule one is uh, drugs that have high addiction, addiction potential with no medical medical benefit. Mm-hmm. And so this is a schedule three drug. This in the codeine family. It's not in the codeine family, but it's in the codeine level of scheduling. So it has some potential for addiction. Uh, we in our clinic we don't prescribe it for anything outside the clinic. We don't give prescriptions. To, we only deliver it inside the clinic. Right. Um, uh, but uh, but it, it did start out as a vet med drug, a veterinary medicine drug, as a, for also for animal anesthetic, horse tranquilizer, yeah. and stuff like that. <laughs> but a lot of things in vet med work for humans and vice versa, and, you know, antibiotics and all sorts of stuff, so non-steroidal. So anyway, yeah. Sure. Okay, so then you talked about we we use ketamine uh, on an off-label basis mm-hmm. to, to treat this. Can you give us an example of another drug that might we and an off-label usage and kind of how that relationship mm-hmm. works together? Yeah. Uh, so uh, common use, for instance, um, let's give, say gabapentin. Uh, Neurontin is the trade name. It's gabapentin. It's an anti-seizure drug, but uh, I, uh, we rarely use it for a seizure uh, treatment in the United States. The vast majority of time we use it for, for neuropathy, for nerve pain. Interesting. Uh, Okay. So we use it for, 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 for that. We actually also use it for anxiety treatment. Um, so uh, so we can use it. So it's, it's not unusual to use a drug uh, for multiple different purposes that, are, that the FDA or the manufacturer never intended it. So if the so if it works, gabapentin, for example, if it works to help with neuropathy, why hasn't the FDA approved it to be used for neuropathy? Yeah, that's good. Um, well, it turns out in the United States, it's really expensive to do all the studies necessary to meet FDA approval right. to, to 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 get to get the, the appropriate approval. So uh, so um, there's some political and bureaucratic aspects to that organization. There's a lot. Yeah. It takes it takes time and money uh, to do the right studies, and uh, if it's already out in the if it's already uh, out in the community and FDA approved for select things. Fortunately, we were we were legally allowed to, to to use it for any other condition that we deem fit to necessary. Okay, interesting. All right, so let's um, you know let's get back to to ketamine a little bit more. So uh, what what does a course of treatment look like? Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of benefits can people expect to see? I'll talk about the IV delivery of Kennedy, uh, the intravenous. So typically, somebody who's treatment-resistant depression, most of our treatment-resistant depressed people have multiple other conditions alongside. They have OCD or anxiety or PTSD or panic. Uh, so it's not unusual to have multiple other things that ketamine may help. But for treatment-resistant depressed patients, our protocol uh, at the Midwest Institute for Hearts and Mind is that after you meet with me for roughly anywhere from an hour to two hours, oftentimes with a partner or loved one so I can get corroborating information. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes these people are sent to us uh, by, by their physicians or practitioners. Uh, some people are come to see us by word of mouth, uh, but they already have primary care doctors or psychologists or, or t- uh, talk therapists. Um, so they have somebody on the outs- outside of our clinic that is helping manage their medications and, and their talk therapy, et cetera. Right. Uh, for us, we look for our, um, six infusions over two weeks. Uh, three weeks, so it's twice a week uh, for three weeks. So it's, we call it contiguous, so that we don't t- try to take a break. So it's uh, twice a week, twice a week, twice a week. Each infusion is forty minutes, four zero minutes. There's some time beforehand to prep you, some time afterwards to recover. So oftentimes you're in the clinic for about an hour and a half mm-hmm. uh, total, but only forty minutes are actually in a recliner with an IV in your hand, a qu- quiet dark room. Sometimes you bring your own headphones. So sometimes you're watching a nature channel. But it's a quiet time, uh, and it's a because it's a dissociative anesthetic. You sometimes I call it a loopy, goofy feeling. Hmm. You may see this room distort, colors to become more intense, noises to become more intense, uh, and this it's not really frightening at all because um, my partner, Dr. Frugi, explains all this uh, to you. You can have a loved one sit with you in the in the darkened room. Um, we can go up and down on the dose. We we, we have a rising dose protocol. We increase the dose uh, with about four times during six. Uh, sessions, but that's we were flexible depending on how you respond, how you feel afterwards, etc. So, very safe drug has been around for decades. Mm-hmm. They use it on pediatric uh, patients. They use it in the military, out in the field. Uh, these are IV uh, intramuscular uh, for emergencies, for sedation and pain control. So it's used throughout the world. Um, and it's very safe, uh, especially in our hands. 
Yeah. So who who administers it at, at our mm-hmm. clinic? Talk about yeah. the expertise that's required behind delivering these treatments. Sure. We, we've chosen uh, eight years ago, uh, Dr. Frugi, my, my business partner, my, my co-founder, Dr. Vafa Frugi, and I chosen the medical model of uh, physicians, nurse. Um, uh, so we don't do a spa. We don't do anything else that's uh, that this would you would recognize this as an infusion center like you would if you were to go receive blood or receive chemotherapy recliner comforters monitors a physician uh, within a, f- a few yards of you um, um, uh, et cetera et cetera so all the safety protocols that uh, we, we anybody would need because we do see a range of people from 15 all the way up to their 80s yeah absolutely um, so can does you know the the expertise require in the environment that people are in does that kind of explain some of the expense factor because ketamine infusions are expensive what mm-hmm. help us understand more about why that is yeah because it's not FDA approved insurance tends not to want to cover it they mm-hmm. consider it experimental even though it's been around for decades um, um, so uh, people uh, typically it's a cash uh, pay some people are able to submit a super bill to their uh, health uh, spending account or medical mm-hmm. savings account right. uh, and get some reimbursements. So that's for the IV. Um, and yes, uh, because the, because you have a physician and a nurse, uh, Aaron, uh, and uh, the, the amount of time in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the office, that's where the expense comes from. Yes, that's correct. Sure. Yeah, I mean that. Um, yeah, that's a, and that's certainly something for people to consider, right? I mean, those are all part of the pros and cons lists of considering any of these treatments mm-hmm. for treatment-resistant depression, so figuring right. out the right fit for you. Right. Um, I'm. You also talked about you know starting off with a consultation in our office, so mm-hmm. you have that you know long. Uh, interview basically with the the patient to help them set uh, expectations and help them understand how the treatment is going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, what what would you say, like, leave us with something hopeful about where treatment is going for mm-hmm. resistant depression and mm-hmm. other mental health issues? Well, so uh, the uh, although ketamine is not considered a psychedelic, uh, it, it does give us dissociative or kind of a little bit of a psychedelic like experience. experience. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit of a psychedelic experience. It's very con- super, super controlled, super tightly controlled compared to what people may hear about and stuff like that. But in the across the world, but especially in the United States, let's talk about the United States uh, from the National Institute of Health, from Johns Hopkins, from from Yale. Uh, not only do we have ketamine and and uh, Maps, uh, which is an organization out on the West Coast. Not only are we dealing with ketamine, which is FDA approved, uh, FDA is legal in the United States, but we're now they're doing uh, at university setting and big uh, and big research uh, study, bigger and bigger research studies for MDMA, which is ecstasy, for for psilocybin, which is magic mushrooms uh, uh, so we're looking at more and more hallucinogens uh, and that for a variety of conditions not just treatment resistant depression but post-traumatic stress disorder end-of-life depression um, uh, and addictions uh, there's some excellent work in terms of uh, tobacco addiction uh, and and alcohol addiction and being true and very brief therapy uh, treatment with psychedelics helping people dramatically yeah, because we we think that the obviously those th- those drugs don't act on serotonin receptors or anything like that. That's right. So we think that there's something therapeutic in this experiential type of treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I mean, we see that with people experiencing dissociation with ketamine too. That's right. You know, unlike Prozac, where it doesn't matter what you drank or ate last night, if you slept or not, you take your Prozac, it'll you'll feel the same way. Um, Ketamine is uh, and and all the psychedelics. Uh, there's a there's there's a mindset right. and setting the room and, and the physical space and then dose. So those are the three things that kind of determine experience: mindset, expectations, etc., and setting and uh, uh, where, where you experience the the uh, treatment, um, the, the safety, the professional uh, setting. What we hope is makes a big difference for us. And then yeah. uh, the dose. And so I've heard you make make this prediction before, but say. You know what? How do you think this is going to change the face of mental health care mm-hmm. over the next, you know, what whatever time frame? Yeah. Like, what are what are we looking at in terms of years? Yeah, I you know I, I believe it's going to be relatively short term within the next less than five years that we're going to see psychedelics that uh, and not, not not always FDA approved. Once again, uh, this is the this is the tricky part. Right. The bureaucracy uh, moves slower than the science. That's right? correct. Yeah. yeah. So I think that people I know people already. Some of my patients already talk 
talk to me about some of the other experiences that they've had, et cetera, that they've done on their own, sure. uh, et cetera, sometimes within the U.S. borders, sometimes outside the U.S. borders. Uh, but, uh, but I believe that uh, we're going to have a, uh, kind of an explosion of treatment options, and not everything is necessarily going to be, uh, depending on how, what the FDA does and yeah. what what uh, and other uh, and our, our justice department, our legal system does. Um, uh, some of the stuff is going to be not in the physician's office, not in a uh, medical setting. So um, you know, it's exciting and scary at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but yeah. I think that we're going to have more options for people. Um, and my hope is eventually uh, the uh, the king of the mountain, the ECT, for instance, will, will uh, be dethroned, appropriately dethroned yeah. by other products that are uh, as effective, if not more effective and uh, and safer. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, that that really inspires a sense of hope. I hope our, our listeners are feeling hopeful after hearing all of this information, too. Mm-hmm. Um, there is so much coming on this new frontier mm-hmm. for mental health treatment. Um, obviously we want to wrap up today by just saying, you know, if you, if you have depression, if you think you have depression, please reach out to your primary care doctor, please build, you know, establish a relationship with a doctor that can help you Mm -hmm. rule out those medical concerns that might be attributing to, you know, your condition, uh, you know, take your meds as they're prescribed, right? Uh, the, do the things that you know that you can do to help yourself, um, and if you're experiencing something that you think is treatment resistant, there are other treatment options out there. Dr. Tadros Listoff, ECT, TMS, uh, Spravato, and the vasal, vagal, vagus nerve stimulator. That's right. Not a doctor here. Um, Yes. So, uh, but then, yeah, ketamine could be an option for you too. So, you uh-huh. know, you can reach out to us where our, the clinic is available online, midwestheartsandminds.com. Mm-hmm. Um, you can submit an inquiry there and I can reach back out to you and give you some more information. There's lots of studies, information about our treatment process and pro- protocol on the website as well. Um, and there's, there's just hope. Don't, don't give up. There is nothing in the textbooks. I tell my patients yeah. and I had a tearful mom the other day with her teenage daughter. Uh, I said, there's nothing in the textbooks to say we give up on people because they failed, you know, X amount of yeah. trials or X amount of medicines. There's nothing that says we give up on people with this addiction or depression or anything else like that. Yeah. Now, uh, I, I, I want to make sure that people understand. It doesn't mean that we're going to get, going to get you an answer or, or sure. therapy as fast as you want, as fast as you need. Uh, but, uh, but there's always. Uh, there's always hope. The other thing I should always ask, because we talk about medicines and drugs and stuff like mm-hmm. that, lifestyle, right. connection with loved ones, uh, connection with a with a purpose, sometimes uh, called a higher power, higher purpose, are incredibly, incredibly important. Um, and we, we're going to talk more about that. That's exciting stuff. Uh, that's you and I. I think we, you and I t- yeah. enjoy talking about that. We do enjoy talking about that stuff. All right. If you want to get involved with the pod or send in a question to Dr. Tadros, you can email us at not your doc pod at gmail.com that's not your doc pod at gmail.com we're gonna see you guys soon and we'll be talking more thanks, thanks dr tadras yeah thank you Vanessa. it was fun thanks yeah. this previous podcast represents my opinions and the opinions of my guests. This is not medical advice and I'm not establishing a physician-patient relationship with any listener. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only and because each patient is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions that you may have.